Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati. Your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education, from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Brian Gibbler. Hello, my name is Brian Gibbler. I'm professor of emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati. And I've got the pleasure of being here today with three outstanding clinicians that are working in the area of reversal for patients that have anticoagulant-based severe bleeding. I have with me today Dr. Natalie Kreitzer, Dr. Paul Dovish, and Dr. Greg Furman. Thank you all very much for being here today. I'd like to start out with Paul and Greg, and please give me your uh, your titles, if you would. And I will uh, want to have you talk to me about this new study that you all have recently presented at the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine and at the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Sure. My name is Paul Dobish, and I'm a PharmD. I'm a professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center at the College of Pharmacy, which is in Omaha, Nebraska. Hi, my name is Greg Furman. I currently serve as professor and executive vice chair of emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati. You all have now described and is in the process of publication, I, I think, a landmark real-world evidence uh, study looking at reversal of anticoagulation in severe bleeding with indexin at alpha and, and four-factor PCC that involves mortality. Can you tell me what you think is important about your uh, your trial and what impact is it going to have on uh, for clinicians taking care of these patients? Sure, I'll start there. So real-world studies, there's been some of them that have been already been done, but you know, there's, there's significant limitations to their applicability, right? They're typically very small. I think one of the largest ones that have been done which suggests that the outcomes are equal is about 109 patients, a little over 50 patients in each group. Um, there is rarely any statistical correction for differences between groups. They rarely know the time from last dose. So are you actually reversing anything at all uh, based on how long ago someone took the dose? And our data really wanted to tackle those limitations, right? So we've got 4,395 patients, which is several fold bigger than any of these other real world trials have been done. So we have significant, we've got really good power. We then also did logistic regression analysis as well as propensity weighted analysis as a sensitivity. Um, so to correct for those backgrounds and we have time from last dose. And so our data I think is, is very strong from a retrospective study design uh, to try to answer this question and showing once again, you know, this 50% reduction in mortality overall and, and really across subgroups. Greg, you want to you're you're an emergency physician by training. You take care of these patients daily. You want to talk a little bit about this from your perspective and how you think that's important and particularly in the identification of patients that have underlying pre-existing conditions that make them at higher risk that I think will be important for our listeners. You bet Brian. So Paul and the and the rest of our investigators in, in this um Retrospective review really, I thought I did a really nice job of identifying those risk factors that really put our patients at a higher risk of mortality. And it's it's the things that we hear a lot, uh, namely chronic kidney disease, liver failure, and heart failure, really put our patients at risk for mortality. 
uh, if you layer on a major bleed like uh, our subjects had. And then you also have in this trial, the greatest sample of GI bleeding uh, in this in this subject population. So we're used to hearing about ICH as the most you know, seemingly common use of uh, reversal agents, but it turns out that we're using it for GI bleeding uh, more than I think we recognize. And so from a real world evidence standpoint, I think we learn a lot just by virtue of the fact that we know uh, in what uh, patients we're using this drug in. Uh, in addition to that, we have over 350 US hospitals so this isn't a single system or a single site analysis. This is over 350 hospitals. So you get a pretty good uh, cross-sectional view of how this is being used across the U.S. And so uh, I think that's where you find the strengths of this trial. And that's that's approximately 10% of the acute care hospitals. I mean, that's, that's very powerful. Uh, Paul, do you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I just was interested too, you know, Greg being in the emergency room, you know, one of the things about our data, you know, I know everyone likes to see randomized prospective randomized controlled trials but you have to realize in this space that's that's extremely difficult to do and in any prospective study right the patient population is fairly well defined and kind of you know it's very like okay this is the narrow window in which we're going to evaluate these patients and i think an advantage to our data is we're kind of this is the real world Right. I think our data applies to a lot larger group of patients than you might probably ever consider putting in a randomized controlled trial. Greg, would you agree with that? Well, wholeheartedly. I, you're seeing uh, patients that would have been um, certainly excluded from most prospective randomized clinical trials. And so that's uh, that's a great point, Paul. Yeah, I, I think that the the aspect and particularly that you talk about this being retrospective, there are two things that, that you are able to delineate completely, and one is mortality, and the other one is the treatment arm. And so being able to get those, albeit retrospectively, still makes it, makes it uh, incredibly powerful. Yeah, and, and you can't, uh, with respect to the endpoint, um, there's no arguing with mortality, right? I mean, either somebody's subject's dead or not dead. Yeah, we could have a discussion, a robust one at that, uh, to determine whether or not a more in-hospital mortality is, in fact, the best uh, outcome. I mean, most of us in the space would like to see a 30-day, um, you know, modified Rankin score, even something longer to look at um, recovery from neurologic damage. But, you know, that's something where a randomized clinical trial may be able to give us some data on. But when you're talking about 4,000 subjects, uh, you really have to have a well-defined endpoint, and this certainly was that. Do the DNR patients uh, have a role in this? And I know that they, you know, please talk about them uh, just a second, because again, you've got uh, an older male population, approximately 60% male, correct? And so you will have some older patients that uh, this may be determined to be an end-of-life type bleeding episode. Can you talk about how that weaves into your data? Yeah, I'll take that. So, you know, the, the biggest challenge here is how to convince our, our audience that the two groups are matched, that there's not some um, unmeasured uh, confounder in our data set. And so perhaps you could make the case that, you know, one drug was used over others because they didn't want to incur the expense of one drug over another. And that might actually be a futility endpoint or a futility marker. So we went out of our way to kind of look at the DNR and whether or not futility might have come into play here. And, and both groups actually had similar numbers of DNR patients. And so uh, that was our kind of surrogate to see if futility was a, was a, was a problem here. 
that's impressive. I, I you know, a lot of times when you do retrospective studies like this, it, it it's hypothesis generating. Do you see this as something that can expand uh, forward and say we would really like to either develop a registry that would get more real-time data or potentially a randomized trial that would look at specific subgroups that you think are particularly important? You know, I think that, uh, you know, we always, like I said, would prefer the randomized trial. You have to realize, too, though, randomized trials aren't real because, right, so if you're going to randomize this patient to study, you know, drug X or Y, that's a pause in care while that process happens. And in practice, we don't pause in care, okay? And so we're actually showing what's happening in real time. Um, and so I think there's certain questions that may not be best answered by a randomized controlled trial, especially when you're talking about this kind of acute care and, and urgency to treatment perspective. Um, now, I think prospective registry data would continue to be um, you know, uh, highly valued. But I would also say, like, if someone's waiting for a 5,000 patient randomized controlled trial to evaluate mortality, they are going to probably die disappointed because I don't see that happening. You know, we have to remember, we're, you know, while these bleeds occur, they're not overly, they're, they're, you know, it's not like they're happening in multiple times a day. These are happening in most institutions three or four to maybe five times a month. Um, and so, you know, that kind of a study A would take enormously long time. And I just don't think that that's something we're going to see happen. And so when you don't have the data you want, you, you have to use the data you have. And I think our data um, really does a good job of filling that gap. And then I think, you know, a prospective registry might be a uh, logical next step of something that could be done. Well, you have a significant number in there of intracranial hemorrhages, and we happen to have an expert on intracranial hemorrhage, a neurocritical care expert that has both ties in emergency medicine and ties in neurocritical care, uh, Dr. Natalie Kreitzer. And Natalie, uh, one, introduce yourself, and two, tell us about how you think intracranial hemorrhage fits into this and uh, the whole concept we're looking at a randomized trial in XI, wanted to get your, your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, so my name is Natalie Kreitzer. I'm Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at University of Cincinnati. Um, and I work um, in the emergency department as well as um, in the neurointensive care unit. Um, and then also um, am part of the UC stroke team. Not surprisingly, my, you know, experience with Indexinet Alpha is, um, of course, with um, intracranial hemorrhage or intracerebral hemorrhage. And then in terms of Inexa I, um, that's a uh, prospective randomized control trial for patients with intracranial hemorrhages um, who are um, randomized either to um, usual care, which is typically four-factor PCCs or um, Indexinet Alpha when they come in therapeutic on um, an anti-10A. So these are patients, it's a phase four multi-center international randomized control trial um, lasting well within six hours and um, within 15 hours of taking their last dose of DOAC. So truly getting at those patients that are probably um, therapeutic on the DOAC with the endpoint being um, hemostatic efficacy. So this is cool because it's actually serial head CTs um, adjudicated by a third party to look to see if it was good or excellent efficacy. Um, so there's really no um, gray area in that. It's um, just a very pre-specified endpoint with a planned enrollment of 1,200 participants. But um, what we know now is that the DSMB has 
recommended the trial to stop early at 450 participants um, because of efficacy, meaning that um, those patients in the index and at alpha group had improved hemostatic efficacy proportion compared to those in the four-factor PCC. So it's a positive trial. Um, not a lot else has been released, of course, yet, but we do know that much at least. Natalie, thank you very much. Are there any uh, other uh, comments before we we pause at this point? I think we're all going to be pretty excited to see um, the final paper for this study. So, Agree, agree. Dr. Furman, Dr. Dobish, Dr. Kreitzer, thank you all very much. It's always a pleasure, and we look forward to our November real-world evidence reports to, uh, to bring this to uh, hopefully conclusion. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd on the go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.